Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Investor Lab. My name is Goose and thanks for joining me today. On today's episode, I have a very special guest with me. His name is Terry Ryder. He's one of the nation's most respected uh, property commentators, property analysts. He's been in the game for 35 years. He brings it an extremely deep level of insight into the Australian property market, how to invest safely. And in fact, what we unpacked today was, was we, went, we went wide and we went deep, which is great. We, we talked about how to see past the headlines, how to see through all the, the media negativity, the hype and the hyperbole to find out what's really going on out there. We, did, we talked about uh, blue collar versus blue chip. We spoke about uh, regionals versus capitals. We spoke about the fundamentals that you need to follow in order to be able to invest confidently in any economic environment, including the one that we are currently in at the moment with the coronavirus. We talked about you know, some really key hotspot areas, which is great. We unpacked a bunch of a bunch of stuff there. It's super jam-packed. It's super valuable. And this is really going to suit anyone who is getting started in their investing journey, but also is looking for more. Maybe you've already bought a few properties and maybe they're not going that well and you're wondering why and, and maybe what you've missed and how you could have done it better. Well, we cover all of that stuff in this episode. So if you're just starting, you've already got a few, this is really going to be really great. Um, if you're not interested in property investing at all, well, you might not find this conversation that interesting. But if you're here and you're listening to this, this tells me that you are interested in real estate. You are interested in building wealth through property. And this, this episode is absolutely jam-packed with gold. Now, off the back of this, I would like to invite you as well because inside our online community, The Investor Lab, at theinvestorlab.com.au, I am doing a deep dive analysis. I'm going to be doing these quite regularly for our, for our paying members. Now, I'm going to be unpacking some of the suburbs that Terry and I spoke about today, some of the areas. So it's particularly some of the areas around Adelaide and some other markets. I'm going to be going deep into the data, deep into the research to help you navigate where, when, and why in your own investing journey to help you make a more empowered decision. So I'm going to be running a masterclass and we're also going to have downloadable uh, reports which are going to give you deep insight, including my top picks of the best suburbs to invest in in that market at that time. This is exclusively only available inside our online community. So head if you would like to join, head to theinvestorlab.com.au forward slash join the community. Jump in there. We're doing heaps of other really cool stuff too in there, including trainings, uh, you know, special guest workshops, all kinds of wicked stuff. Um, so make sure you check that out. And also, if you actually just want someone to help you buy a property, if you're just like, I want to get in the market right now, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't have time, I don't need the stress, and I just want someone to do it for me, well, we can help with that too. So we run Dashdot Buyers Agents, as I'm sure you probably know by now. And if you want help to find your own high-performance property, well, then you can apply to work with us too. Just head to dashdot.info forward slash application to apply to work with us now. And if it's a good fit, I will personally get in touch and you'll be working directly with myself and Gabby to find your next high performance investment. Anyway, let's get stuck into it. I know you're going to love this episode. The audio is a little scratchy at times, so please try and see past that because there was so much valuable insight here and I know you're going to get a hell of a lot out of it. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Stay safe. Hello and 
and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab. And on today's show, I am joined by a very, very special guest. And just to give him a little bit of an introduction, now, his name's Terry Ryder. Most people know him for his work at Hotspotting or hotspotting.com.au. But he's been a, a specialist, independent uh, speaker, researcher, analyst, on, writer on the, on the Australian property market for about 35 years. Now, over those 35 years, he's become widely recognized and respected as one of the most insightful and prominent commentators on the Australian pro- property market, largely because of his ability to cut through the noise, look at the facts and identify what the best markets are to invest in in the country, regardless of kind of whatever your price point or whatever your strategy may be, which I think is a really powerful thing. So, Terry, I'd like to welcome you to the show. It's great to be here, Goose, and great to have another opportunity to talk about my favorite topic, which is residential real estate. Indeed, indeed. So some of the stuff that we're going to cover today, we've kind of had a bit of a chat beforehand. We really want to try and make this really valuable and bring a lot of um, positivity, but not hyperbole, I think is the best way to think about it. We're not here to try and and, um, tell everyone that the world is great and there's no problems and everyone should just get stuck into it and go buy heaps of property. But... The really big thing that I want to cut through, and I, which is why I'm excited to have you on the show, is how to, how to get beyond the headlines because so, so much attention right now is being focused on what's being said either on social media, mainstream media, and all of this kind of stuff. And quite frankly, it's a bad news story most of the time when you listen to it. Yeah. But based on the conversations that you and I have had, it's not, that's not exactly true, right? I mean, what, what have you noticed about that kind of that kind of side of things? I think the headlines are highly misleading most of the time and in some cases blatantly dishonest. I mean, it's all about clickbait these days, isn't it? It's, um, they want people to uh, click on the headline and go through to the article. That helps their, their numbers and helps them attract advertisers. And what we find, because every day we're researching the whole country, we're looking for information that alerts us to the, the best places for people to buy as uh, property investors. And what we notice when we're delving into media around the country is quite often the headline doesn't actually reflect the content of the story. The headline quite often is a blatant lie, and I can't put it um, more succinctly than that. It's um, very often quite deliberately dishonest. All they want you to do is click on the damn thing and go through the article, and then you find the substance of the story is actually quite often very different to the impression conveyed by the headlines, but the problem is that for a lot of Australians who are interested in property investment, they don't do more than absorb the headlines and, and the sound bites. And so quite often they've got their heads full of misinformation and a lot of it's very negative sensation and uh, it's not helpful because it affects sentiment. And um, what we need right now, particularly when we're in this unprecedented climate of, of shutdown, is uh, real information, balanced information. Um, now, people already know that you know we're we're in a tough time. We, media doesn't need to embellish that. It's already the biggest story any of them have written about in their lifetimes. What people need is um, useful information and and, uh, and and some positivity, but most of all, balance. But I I, I couldn't agree more because I mean positivity in and of itself, for positivity's sake, can also be just as. Uh, I guess damaging, misleading, or or otherwise, as as negativity for clickbait's sake. Now, you and I both know that from a media perspective, or from a um, 
a salesmanship in print perspective, negativity gets more attention than positivity. You know, that they, they, they worked that out in about, I think it was about the 1920s when um, Time Magazine tried to run a whole bunch of positive, uh, co- they, they used to run positive stories on the cover of Time Magazine and then one day they got a new editor who said, actually, nah, let's switch this around and let's start saying bad stuff and their sales tripled, right? And, uh, and that was the moment that the, the media really transitioned from, from truth to uh, to how many copies can we sell? How do we how do we get more clicks? And I think it's easy to recognise now nowadays, particularly when you've got the mainstream news, uh, like you know, or your Channel Sevens and all of that kind of stuff, doing Facebook Lives to do their to do their news shows and stuff like that, which is partly embracing new technology. I, I get that and I expect that and I uh, I respect that. Um, but I think you're right. Most people are only uh, digesting really the snapshot and i think a lot of people might expect that from some of the more tabloidal or commercial media but what i am starting to see and i'd love your perspective on this before we move on is i'm i've always turned to uh, i'm you know i not necessarily alternative news sources but you know stuff like the australian financial review like stuff where i would hope that there's a bit more of a um well-structured positively uh respectful and factual, fact-based um, uh, journalism. And that doesn't seem to be the case anymore either. Not anymore, not anymore, Goose. Look, it used to be, look, I, I worked, I started out as a newspaper journalist. I worked um, Curry Mail in Brisbane as a real estate editor, and then I went to the Australian Financial Review that you've just mentioned as a, as a real estate specialist. And um, in those days, you had two types of media. You had the quality media, the, the newspapers that had some pretensions to producing quality information without sensationalism, with balance and accuracy and things checked out. Um, and then you had tabloid media, which was the shock horror probe type headlines. Um, but now, as far as I'm concerned, it's all tabloid. Um, the, the, the Sydney Morning Herald's gone tabloid, ABC Television's gone tabloid, and I think the worst of them all is the Australian Financial Review, which used to be one of our most august uh, and serious newspapers with pretensions to quality these days. It's, it's just uh, clickbait, sensational negativity, and no more so than residential real estate. They seem to regard residential property as not so much something to be reported on, but something to be attacked. And everything they write about residential real estate, not just in this um, shutdown period with the, the coronavirus, but at all times, everything they write about residential property is sensational and negative. And um, I, I warn people about them in particular, um, regularly with, with my broadcast because I just think people need to be aware that you're not getting quality, balanced information. That's what people want. Uh, real estate investors just want good information. They want balanced, reliable information they can trust because they're making big decisions about big sums of money and unfortunately they're not getting it from mainstream media anymore. So they're reliant on um, people like you and me um, for for balance and quality information. So. Let's give them some of that today, Goose. Mate, sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. Well, and I, just a quick one. I think you're right on that uh, AFR and their perspective on residential real estate because I, I actually, I'm a subscriber to AFR, but I only like it because of the way they report on companies specifically. Uh, everything else I think is, uh, is, is just washed. Anyway, what I want to ask you off the back of this, as we start to spearhead into some more um, practical, tactical uh, implementation style and analysis of the, of the current market, I would love to know, based on the conversation we just had, what's really going on out there? You know, if, 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 we can't believe, if we can't believe the news that we're being fed, 
this two-part question. If we can't believe the news that we're being fed, A, how are you finding the truth and how do you define whether it is truth? And off the back of that, what do you see is really going on out there? How do you see the property market and the Australian economy being affected over the short, medium and long term? Yeah. I think it's about looking at what the independent data tells us and that's quite often different from the headlines and also from talking to people at the coalface. Um, I'm really interested to talk to valuers, to our buyers agents, also selling agents, particularly in the, the regional areas where there's, um, you know, um, selling agents do have a tendency to, to embellish perhaps, but um, certainly valuers and buyers agents are good people to have discussions with. People who are in the development field or investment advisors, just having private conversations with them and finding out what they're experiencing at the coalface. And, and I'm having uh, a lot of conversations with people who are really quite upbeat, surprisingly upbeat, um, with, against that background of very negative media. Uh, there's, there's lots of people out there who are finding that they're still doing good business, there's still buyers out there. Um, what they are saying is that the tie kickers are gone from the market. They kind of like operating a market like this because they're not wasting time on tie kickers who perhaps take up 75% of their time in normal times. They're actually dealing with the buyers who are making inquiries a genuine bias. And so good sales are still happening. And what we're seeing in the price data is there's no evidence to date of any significant decline in values in our major cities. At the start of April, when the figures for March came out, they were very positive figures, and media slant on that was, yeah, but they're irrelevant because we haven't seen the full impact of the virus yet. And the figures for April are going to show you know, much more negative outcomes. Well, here we are right at the end of April and the figures to date aren't showing that. We were told to expect major evidence of decline in property values by now, uh, but we haven't seen it. Um, keeping in mind that this really started, for me anyway, on the 20th of February when, when we had the first meltdown on the share market. That's when the first major evidence came that something big was coming. So we're 10 weeks beyond that and still we haven't seen in the price data any evidence of significant decline. Um, up to In the last month, up to this point, Sydney is still up, Melbourne's still up, cities like Darwin are still up, Brisbane's a little bit up. Um, I think, um, but, but Terry, in but the SPM but, research figures, the only city that's down is actually uh, Perth uh, in, in the month-to-month figures. So... It just shows the resilience of real estate and that's something I think that people can depend on as we work our way through this um, shutdown period and then come out the other side in making decisions about, you know, where should we be interested in investing? So, I mean, that sounds great and I'm obviously very uh, pro-property, but surely surely the reason that we're not seeing declines and i'm being devil's advocate here but i'm trying to be the voice in the room of the listener and the every the every person as well to give them the perspective surely the reason that we haven't seen declines in property prices is because of mortgage freezes which is meaning that a lot of uh, vendors aren't being pushed into for sales just yet and we're seeing less stock on the market so it's creating a biased perspective on what the actual um, selling point is what do you think about that Look, I really don't think that's a big factor. I think one, one of the key factors is not being much talked about. In terms of people's position with their mortgages, um, the major banks have told us the sort of numbers of people who have actually inquired about having a mortgage freeze. Um, Matt Common, the CEO of Commonwealth Bank, about a week ago was talking about that. And the numbers he gave based on as a percentage of their total mortgage customer base 
was about 3.9% of their customers with mortgages had made inquiries about having a, um, a mortgage holiday. And that's very, very low and much lower than people would have expected. Now, um, I think the main reason why that's happening is that most people, most households with mortgages are actually ahead on their mortgage. The typical situation is two to three years ahead because people have been using these recent years of very low interest rates to make extra payments and to get ahead. And so most households are in a very comfortable position, including those who, who might have had their, their incomes affected by a business shutdown or reduced hours, they're still relatively com comfortable because they're ahead on their mortgages. And adding to that, you've got the banks coming in and offering those mortgage holidays. So we haven't, we're not seeing uh, enforced sales. Now, in terms of whether we're going to, it depends on how long we're in this. But uh, the indications are that we're actually going to be in the shutdown period uh, for a much shorter time than we were originally led to believe. The Prime Minister originally was saying six months, but here we are, you know, barely a month into it, and we're now starting to see an easing of restrictions. So I think it's, it's going to be much more short-term than we were originally expecting. Uh, we've controlled the, the virus in terms of the health impacts better than most countries in the world. Uh, we've got lots of stimulus spending out there at us federal level, at a state level, even at a local council level. And all of those factors um, mean that we're a much better place than most countries and our real estate market is responding quite positively to all of that so far. The one area I would say, Agus, just to, um, you know, to pro provide some balance to what sounds like a very up upbeat uh, synopsis is that we are seeing impact on rentals. That That's coming through in the figures. Uh, we're seeing a decline in uh, rates for rentals and um, that probably wouldn't surprise us, but uh, relative, you know, in relative terms, prices are hanging tough, but rents are starting to fall. Well, and this was actually going to be one of my comments. So, um, I mean, I can see that uh, that that we're seeing a bit more relaxation with the social distancing. I mean, Bondi Beach, just down the road from me, that's um, that's open. You can swim there, you can surf there, and you know, there's people wandering around. It feels like everything's starting to get back to normal, which is awesome. But there's obviously, of course, the risk of you know another spike. You know, we saw that in Singapore. Um, we saw all these other kind of things happening. But what you spoke about there about the you know uh, typical households being two to three years ahead on their mortgages and stuff like that sounds great. However, what about for property investors? Because that sounds to me much more like homeowners who are being astute in their own, um, you know, taking care of their own, their own mortgage needs. When we see areas um, with rents affected, now I've got a perspective on this. So I'd love to share my perspective too, because what I'm seeing is that it's not, not everywhere being affected equally. And, I, and, I, and I'm sure you would agree. I'm sure you would agree. However, some areas are being affected from a rental perspective. And yeah. so that's what is most concerning to property investors because yeah. as the rents go down, now they may, there may be an eviction moratorium, there may be all kinds of things. So we might not, and then also simultaneously, there might be a mortgage freeze. So what we could just be seeing is a delayed decline in those areas that are affected, which I think is what is the biggest concern for people is that they may be caught unawares down the line. I mean, on a personal note, We've been helping buyers continue to buy in this market. and We'll talk maybe in a moment around what kind of fundamentals are going to allow you to continue to buy. It's right through this, this kind of environment. Um, but even with our buyers, they're saying things like, okay, you know, what, what, happens, what happens if we buy it and then two weeks later, you know, they don't have a job? And it's like, well, you know, 
it, 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 there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there i'm sure but um certainly certainly i think we are seeing some areas where rents have been affected particularly yeah. particularly areas affected by tourism or particularly um you know in the, i would say in the kind of 500 dollar a week plus uh range that's where the where it becomes sort of slightly less affordable um for renters would you agree with that yeah look I, th- I think it's it very. I mean, you, you made the point that we don't have one situation, and that's the point I keep making to people because media keeps talking about Australia as a single market. You know, Australian property prices are going to do X in the next twelve months, which is ludicrous. We're a huge country, lots of different scenarios playing out at any point in time, and it's the same in this period. Some areas are going to be affected more than others. Some areas are actually going to thrive in in this this period because of the makeup of their economy. So. For me, the simple formula is um, when trying to decide the areas where it's it's going to be good to, to buy because the you know, great opportunity for a buyer to get out there and buy well at the moment, um, but where to buy. So the areas that are good to buy and the ones to avoid, the criteria in simple terms would be what was the market doing as we came into this um, period? Was it a strong market? What were vacancy levels like as we came into this period? Uh, what's the makeup of the local economy? That's really important because um, those that are essentially about tourism, particularly international tourism, like the Gold Coast, for example, are going to suffer. And what's the, the level of infrastructure spending in, in these places and what indications are there that local governments, for example, or state governments are going to be fast-tracking things to uh, supercharge the economy as we recover. So when you start applying that thought process to locations, you, you start to see areas where um, it would be a really good idea to buy. Many of them are regional areas, but some of our capital cities as well, I think more so than others. And um, it starts to become a little bit clearer about um, where investors should be focusing attention during this time of opportunity. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And you know, full disclosure, as we were really entering into the, um, the eye of the storm or the, or the beginning of the maelstrom, I guess, towards the end of March, um, you know, we, we work with quite a number of uh, investors. We, we only work with the investor clients. So, but by and large, everyone started to get a little unsettled. And I think that that was a pretty unanimous uh, feeling, th- sentiment through society, not just property investors, towards the end of March. So we actually took a little bit of a uh, pragmatic step back. I said, okay, guys, look, Let's not rush this. Let's just take a moment. Let's step back, take a big old deep breath, and let's just take a look at it. I said, I, I said, my my duty is to be a custodian over your property journey, and I take that very seriously. So I'm not going to rush you into a market that I'm not confident about. So I said, let me just step back and take a bit of a look at it. Now, I went into that that period of I guess pause for our for our business um, where we took a short break, and I went, okay, I really need to have, think clearly. Is what we're doing what we should be doing in this market? Do we need to change anything about what we are doing? And can I see any disruption happening around, you know, where can I see that and how can we avoid it, right? And taking that perspective that I was fully, I was like, we may need to change our strategy, maybe, right? So I went in with open eyes. And what I actually found was, I guess, quite gratifying in in a way in that, the fundamentals that we were following and the areas that we were investing in already were were sound you know so the air, you know if everything we do is based on you know three core principles cash flow positive solid growth and the ability to add values that's our holy trinity strategy now 
off the back of that, in order to define an area that is going to have good growth as well as have good cash flow and all of these characteristics, you need to be looking in areas where the vacancy rates are really low and you've got these other indicators that you, that you just pointed out. So low vacancy rates, um, diversified employment, so not single source dependent in any way, um, good, good accessibility, um, strong demand, all of these kind of things. And what we actually found is that the markets that we were in before this started are the markets that are still holding strong now. And actually, as you, as you said, are actually still really strong and growing. And so we're not actually seeing that, that, that decline. At first, I thought it was, uh, at first I thought it was uh, real estate, um, I guess, sa- sales hyperbole of like, oh, everything's great and we're having the best weeks ever. Um, but looking at it critically, I can't, I, can't see, I can't see any critical failure. And you're right, some, 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 are, some of the best areas at the moment are regional, but there's still great pockets uh, in and around the capitals, depending on the price point, strategy, and all of that kind of stuff too. So, okay, so we've kind of touched on the fundamentals there. We've talked about um, seeking low vacancy rates, diversified economies, strong employment. What else do people need to look out for when they want to try and find a hotspot? In terms of um, working through the current set of circumstances, like it, it's about you know what are the strong elements of the local economy and how does that sit with the current circumstances? Now, you know, ask yourself some fundamental questions. Which some businesses are thriving in this climate; they're doing better than they would normally do. Supermarkets, for example, and the people who supply supermarkets, bottle stores, and the people who supply them. Uh, the resources sector is is going pretty strongly, and I would add to that that I believe that coming out of this, we're going to see another resources boom in Australia um, as as um, Australia, but also um, other countries uh, seek to recover, particularly China, and that's going to be very good for our resources sector. So what what uh, regional centres, for example, out there are, um, are strong in those areas, agriculture, viticulture and resources, and it starts to suggest some locations. Um, Orange in New South Wales, for example, um, when you look at the makeup of its economy, it's really well placed. I mean, it's got elements of tourism, certainly, and, and that will take a hit, tourism and hospitality, like everywhere. But, I mean, it's got um, one of Australia's biggest gold mines uh, on its doorstep, which is um, undergoing a major expansion again. That's very good for Orange. It's got lots of state government departments and an employment there is very solid. That's good. It's got a very, very strong medical services sector with um, new developments happening, expansion of infrastructure. That's a very good, um, strong industry sector to have. Big wine industry, lots of agriculture surrounding it. So you start to see a place like Orange is, is really well situated to ride this out and to be strong going forward. And there are others um, that also tick those boxes around the country. So, um, you know, a lot, a lot of good regional markets. And, of course, regional Australia is much less affected directly by the coronavirus than the big cities are. So um, there's a very long list of uh, regional towns out there that have got no cases at all and haven't had any and probably won't. And... Um, they're, they're based on strong agricultural economies, for example, uh, not so much tourism, and um, in the current circumstances, they're set up to thrive. So, you know, let, let, let me let me just hit on that, Terry, before we move on from from that point, because this is a big question that a lot of people ask: regionals versus capitals. What a what defines regional? Firstly, um, and you know, there's a lot, I guess, of look. I I believe it's um, uh, a mistake that people believe that you only get capital growth in the cities. You only need to take a bit more of a historical look at Sydney to see where it had flat spots and downturns and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But 
how regional how regional is regional because when when you say regional people often think um of a tiny three-horse town with about two farmers and about six teeth between them and you know there's nothing going on they're like oh i don't want to invest in a tiny 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 country town but is that is that regional and also how do you how do regionals compare for on a performance perspective to capital cities and how can people overcome that that bias that is built in yeah look look it is a bias and it's, it's those sorts of impressions that people have absorbed from headlines and media sound bites without actually doing any real research and having real knowledge because once you start to do some research you find that um, many of those cherished beliefs are actually myths and misconceptions um, so um, what in the last two years where's the best capital growth in Australia been well it's actually been regional Victoria and in Tasmania Hobart and regional Tasmania plus regional Victoria by far so, you know, it hasn't been in Sydney and Melbourne or any of the other big cities. It's been in those regional areas. Not so unusual. Um, what do we mean by regional? Well, um, not all of regional Australia is, is to be recommended. Of course, you know, if you're talking about one-horse towns and small places where um, it's just got a, a one-horse economy, well, certainly you avoid those places. You would also avoid uh, locations in the regions which is just about the resources sector because they're very fickle and volatile and dangerous and you're likely to, to lose your money more than you're likely to make money. So what you're looking for is regional centres of a certain size, say at least twenty or 30,000 population, so it starts to eliminate a lot of non-contenders. Places that have got diversity in the economy are really important. Okay, so that starts to eliminate a lot of places as well. So you start to develop a short list of places that fit those criteria. Uh, major population, growing population, ideally quite well connected to their capital city. So one of the trends we're seeing is people exiting the big cities for affordability reasons, for lifestyle reasons, for reasons that you don't actually need to be in the city for your job. You can actually work from home and this current situation is exacerbating that trend because people have been forced to work from home and a lot of people are going to say, hey, we really like that, can we make it permanent? And their employers in some cases, we'll say, well, that's actually good for us because we don't need to pay so much for office space if we've got more people working remotely. So that's been part of the reason why we've had such an upward trend in regional Victoria, but particularly places that are, say, one to two hours from Melbourne um, and well-connected by good road and rail links. So if you start to, to narrow the list down and say we're not just talking about anywhere in regional Australia, we're starting to talk about regional centres with particular qualities, and then you start to find really good places um, which are uh, delivered in the past, are delivering now, and will deliver in the future. And um, uh, Ballarat and Bendigo in regional Victoria stand out, for example, as mm. uh, good examples. And I know you're well aware of those markets, Kurt. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So um, we we've been you know pretty active in the Bendigo market for some time, and it's very interesting. I've seen it go in waves. Since we started buying in there, I've sort of seen it go in uh, some micro cycles where things got really hot, we backed off, and then we started to see more opportunity again, we, we zoomed back in, and it's been very interesting. But um, you know, looking beyond those markets now, um, I'm starting to see uh, some pretty interesting trends, particularly um, you know, in other parts of regional Australia. Now, some people want to stick closer to the capitals and all of that kind of stuff, but you know, I've heard you say Orange, I've heard you say Bendigo, I've heard you say Ballarat. Um, 
are these places that you are saying are hotspots right now? Do you think that's where people should go or do you think that, they should, they, that there's a bit of a broader view that they need to take on that? Well, I think the great examples of what we're talking about, the general principles to look for, but you also need to then go delve a little bit deeper. For example, I would say that the best time to buy in Ballarat has passed. It would have been great to buy there, say, three years ago because it's Agreed. already had substantial growth in this cycle, whereas Bendigo is a little bit further back in the cycle, so I think there's more upside if I had to make a choice. In fact, I did actually make that choice um, in the last 12 months. Um, Bendigo, Ballarat, um, well, I think was, I thought there was more upside to be had in Bendigo, so yeah. that's where I went personally. Um, but there's, there's plenty of other places that, that, that tick those sorts of boxes in, uh, in New South Wales, increasingly in Queensland. Um, one of the surprising uh, things that's come out of our research is the amount of um, regional areas in South Australia that have shown really good price growth in the last really? few years. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really expect that. Um, but um, I do think, and we'll probably talk a bit more about this, that Adelaide in South Australia is incredibly underrated. I think Adelaide is the most underrated um, capital city market in Australia. Another place that I've, I've personally uh, bought in recently um, and um, I just think it's got so much to offer. And in particular, I think it's a city that's really well situated to move forward from this current crisis situation really strongly. And um, if you'd like to talk about that in more detail, I'd be really happy to do so. But um, yeah, I think know. I think I, I would like to do that because um, the reason that I want to get you on the show is not just because not just because you know you support my ideas, but because the 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 values that you have around uh, what you see in property are very similar to what I see in property, and so mm. so what I have discovered from reading your research has validated the decisions I was already coming to and provided a little bit more insight and detail. So, you know, I I, I wholeheartedly agree, and in fact, for our clients. One of the key areas that we are investing in is Adelaide. Now, there are very specific pockets. I'm not going to go into, you know, granular detail on that right now because obviously we want to, you know, preserve the quality of the of the work that we're doing with our current clients. But one thing I wanted to just raise very quickly is you spoke about the fact that regional Victoria and um, regional Tasmania and Hobart have had the strongest performing markets over the past two years. Now, this. I believe that past performance is never an indicator of future performance. Uh, you're right. So how can so? And then a lot of people look at um, Adelaide or the Adelaide, and again, people take these these very high level views, and they'll say the Adelaide market. Well, there's there's many 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 micro markets within Adelaide anyway. So so that's a bit of a, a misnomer. But let's just say people look at Adelaide and they say, oh, but Adelaide's always just been pretty like you know slow performing and it's been a little bit middle of the road and you know is that really the best place to do it because they look at past performance so how can you how can you decide okay well Hobart's been going great for the last couple of years regional Victoria's been going great for the last couple of years should we just go there because it's been going good is it going to keep going good or how do you know how do you know when to, to spearhead into a new place where you've got to confront your fears and go okay this place has not really had much movement but i know it will i just know it will and how do you how do you overcome that emotional dichotomy between those two realities the facts you know and the facts you think you might get and um yeah i'd love to i'd love to get your perspective on that because i know that that's a big thing that a lot of people uh, struggle with yeah well i mean you get our reports so and and i know i know you've had a good look at them and you notice there's a certain structure to them it starts out by by talking about the now the, the local 
economy and the demographics, the makeup of, of that location now. But eventually we get to what I think is the most important part of those reports because they're all structured in the same format, and that is future prospects. What's coming up in the future and what are the clues to what's coming up in the future? So it often relates to infrastructure spending that's underway or that's approved or is in planning and also other levels of development. And so you start to get a picture of, um, okay, very solid place based on the now, but doesn't have a future. And then you start to read that part of the report and you realise, my God, look at what's coming out. And the Sunshine Coast is a great example. We've been very, very strong on the Sunshine Coast, um, whereas, like, say, five, six years ago, we would have almost classified it as a no-go zone. What's changed? Enormous amount has changed. $20 billion worth of infrastructure spending, that's, that's the change. Has completely revolutionised that economy, and a lot of it's um, happening right now, and there's more coming up. And uh, once you start to read the detail of what's happening on the Sunshine Coast, you start to get excited about it as an economy and as a market. I mean, it's transitioning from a, a fairly sleepy tourist town to an international city, and it may sound like a bit of a sweeping uh, statement or an exaggeration, but I don't think it is. I think that's exactly what's happening on the Sunshine Coast and why we're so interested in it. So the future there is undeniably strong. Uh, so there are ways that you can see the future by looking at what's happening and what's planned and what's approved. And we always take the, the attitude, okay, so these things are planned and these, what, what if, say, half of it doesn't happen? Because quite often things are announced by government, say, with an election coming up and subsequently, the project that they've talked about doesn't happen. What if, say, half of it doesn't happen? Is it is it still a good place to be? So you've got to ask yourself those sorts of questions. But um, there's plenty of places out there that are well set up based on what's coming up in their future. And we mentioned Adelaide. I think Adelaide's one of the best examples in Australia of that, and that's why I'm personally excited about it, why we recommend it strongly in our reports and why I personally have invested there. Yeah, oh, look, I, I yeah, I genuinely, uh, gen, genuinely couldn't agree more. I think it's got one of the um, the strongest growth stories coming up um, in anywhere in Australia. I do, yeah. and, uh, um, but again, it only suits a certain type of investor because there's different price points. Um, you know, people have got different needs, hopes, dreams, desires, needs, wants, fears, all of that kind of stuff. Some people have got lower budgets and they want higher yeah. yields. Some people have got higher budgets and they want lower yields. So. I want to ask you a question. What do you think performs better? And this can just be an opinion. This doesn't need to be, you don't need to hang your um, professional name against it. What do you think is better, blue chip or blue collar from an investment perspective? What do you think performs better, has the lowest level of sort of risk um, and is the most astute, uh, I guess, purchasing paradigm for an investor? Yeah, look, I, I, I suppose if I had to make a choice between those two, I'd go for blue collar personally, um, but really what I would go for is A-grade, you know, A-grade investment quality type property. Now, a lot of people think that means expensive. Well, it doesn't. And I was having this discussion um, recently on another webinar with uh, um, a real estate professional. A-grade doesn't mean expensive. It doesn't mean inner city necessarily. It's it's um, the type of property that ticks a lot of boxes in terms of the qualities that we've just been talking about. So um, for me in, say, looking, well, you, using Adelaide as an example, looking, I, I was looking uh, initially at an area which you would say is 
the lower end of middle market, not the top end, but not the, the bottom end either, because it, um, the quality is that we're in the affordability. I mean, Adelaide, Adelaide provides amazing value for money for people. I mean, what, what you can buy in Adelaide for 400000 would be 800000 in Sydney, um, you know, sort of like half the price of the, the biggest cities. Great value for money. A wonderful suburbs and good streetscapes where at unbelievably low prices. But it's, what's more important is um, the infrastructure that's there and what's coming up. So there's an area called um, the um, City of Marion. It's a local government area in Adelaide. You're probably familiar with it. Um, and my suburbs there are meeting house prices in the 400,000s and 500,000s. It's about sort of 10, 12 k's from the Adelaide CBD. So it's middle ring. Um, but it's got the Flinders um, University campus there, and it's got the Flinders Medical Precinct, which includes a major public hospital, a major private hospital, and they're expanding. Um, and new rail links are being extended down there. And also there is the Tonsley Innovation Precinct, and this is the most exciting thing about Adelaide because it's the high-tech innovation capital of Australia. It's the Silicon Valley of Australia. Not many people realise that, but most of the big... Uh, International companies that have a presence in Australia in that field have their headquarters in Adelaide, like Technicolor, for example, it's been part of movies for the last, you know, 50 or more years. Um, Elon Musk with his Tesla battery technology, set up his Australian headquarters in Adelaide. The Australian Space Agency has been headquartered in Adelaide, and so the list goes on. Um, can, can I ask why? Can I, can I ask why? Like, 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 like Adelaide has always been... Uh, I guess noted as the, the the sleepy big country town. It was never really yeah. been. It's kind of almost been a, a pretend city where it's like a big a big big country town basically. How the hell has that become the centre for innovation, tech, uh, technological advancement, health? You know, it's got the largest uh, hospital in the world. It's got like how have, how has Adelaide snuck up? You know, you've got all these cities like. Melbourne, which prides itself on its culture and its sophistication, and Sydney, which prides itself on its business and its commerce. And how has Adelaide snuck in there to become the new Silicon Valley of Australia? I think it's very interesting. Yeah. And the Australian leader on alternative energy, which is an incredibly important industry to have as you know, be the national leader in you know, wind farms, uh, solar farms. That, that's one of the, the, the that's one of the things that's going to lead Australia out of the out of the uh, the downturn, I think, is alternative energy. But they've gone in and chased it and grabbed it for themselves. You know, they, they you know, ambition is really important. The ambition of a local council or a local state government is a really important factor. That's what the Sunshine Coast is doing as well. Is that that's why its economy is transitioning enormously because the local council got really ambitious. That we're sick of being a, a sleepy little tourist town and that's sort of so vulnerable to weather and um, pilot strikes and things like that. We want a stronger future. And they went out and they created it. And Adelaide's done that with high-tech innovation um, very strongly. And it's also got those amazingly large contracts to build vessels for the Navy, $90 billion worth, which is a, a long-term project that's now underway, building submarines and frigates for the Navy, $90 billion. That would be huge for Sydney, but for Adelaide, it's enormous. Mm. And they grabbed that um, by lobbying and, um, you know, they've attracted that business to themselves. And, and now they've got critical mass in that high-tech innovation field. So um, they're attracting like businesses to themselves because they're well-established in that field. And that's really important for the future of their economy and its property market because what are some of the businesses that have actually thrived in this 
shutdown phase. Well, technology businesses, now Zoom, for example, that's the medium by which we're having this discussion today. They've gone through the roof um, with their business because um, face-to-face meetings haven't been possible. So it's just suddenly um, made people more aware of the possibilities of technology. And um, that's a very exciting part of their future. But, you know, to answer your question, they saw the opportunity, they went and grabbed it, nobody else seemed to want it, and um, now they're established with it, and it's going to be really big, making Adelaide a much more important city as we go forward. 100%. So given everything you've just said as well about, you know, Zoom and people don't need to work from, you know, offices and we're going to see a decentralization of the workforce, I, I strongly believe we're going to see a massive decentralization of the workforce because, yeah. you know, people will be able to work from wherever they want, you know. So as opposed to being, okay, well, I need to be in a commutable distance from from the Sydney CBD, for example, just one example, they can now go, well, what is commutable if I don't need to go there for a meeting once a month? That, that suddenly becomes, that could be a six-hour drive, you know, if that means that they get to live up the coast in Yamba where they get to surf in the mornings and, 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 and choose a, a better lifestyle. So do you think that lifestyle is going to become one of the most uh, profound drivers of decentralized growth? And also, to back on that, do you think if we decentralize that it will create stagnated holistic growth and everything will rise just a little bit. Now, what I mean by that is rather than everyone concentrating in the capitals and it pushing that up because of pure supply and demand, everyone wants to go there and oh, it becomes very heated. If everyone started to disperse, let's just say in a hypothetical scenario, everyone went, oh, I could go live in a tiny town. Everyone started to disperse. Would we just see that rather than some markets going up by, say, 10% in a year, all markets would go up by half a percent. Do you think that could be a reality? Um, no, I think we're, we're going to have um, yeah, um, different markets are going to rise at different levels and some, some are going to go up in double digits as we've seen in the last couple of years. I think that's going to continue. But um, I think that you know, the first part of your question was that trend. I think that, that trend was already underway um, with people seeking lifestyle, realising that they didn't actually need to be um, in the CBD every day. And, um, you know, increasingly, um, CBDs are becoming less and less important. They will always have importance. But um, most people don't work in the CBD. There used to be a time when um, most of the shopping was in the CBD as well. Well, of course, nobody shops in the CBD for their day-to-day shopping anymore. It's all out in the suburbs. The biggest jobs nodes in our cities are actually out in the suburbs. And KPMG, I think it is, that regularly does um, some research on where's the the economic centre of our major cities. And whenever they do that research, they're finding that the economic centre, where most of the jobs are, most of the economic activity, is moving further and further away from the CBDs every time they update that research. Um, it's been shown to be true in Melbourne, also in Sydney, and I know that in Brisbane, the biggest jobs node isn't the CBD, it's the Australian Trade Coast precinct, which surrounds the airport and the seaport, which are quite close together. So... Now, we've already got a big trend underway with the economic centre moving away from the CBDs, and that's exacerbated by the work from home through technology um, situation, and that's being exacerbated by the current shutdown when more people are forced to work from home, and um, some people will say, well, we like this, can we make it permanent? So that trend where regional Victoria is rising um, is, I think, going to continue and be enhanced, and locations like the Central Coast and uh, the southern highlands near, near Sydney are going to, to grow uh, 
um, as a result of that trend. And more and more people will be chasing that lifestyle because they just don't need to go into an office in the CBD to do their jobs and pursue their careers anymore. Mm. Mm. No, I, I, yeah, no, I think that's, I think it's good. Speaking of that, and just uh, you just kind of hit on a point, you know, some of the some of the areas around Sydney that are going to experience strong growth and all of that kind of stuff. What are your views on cash flow versus capital growth in building a property portfolio? Look, uh, the, the general view seems to be it's another one of these myths and misconceptions in real estate that you've got to make a choice between one or the other. And I say, no, you don't. You can have both. You select wisely, you can have both. I mean, regional Victoria again and regional Tasmania, um, great examples of that. Anybody Ad- who Adelaide, say, Adelaide. Adelaide is a great example of that. Yeah, well, I mean, just yeah, I mean, I bought, I bought something there quite recently, um, low 300,000s in a location I really like because it's surrounded by massive jobs nodes and it's um, the, the initial rental return was like six and a half percent and it's pretty good for a capital city um really solid real estate uh, corner block can be um you know you can value add in the future um that to me is really good investing um but regional australia the good ones the good locations provide those sorts of opportunity um in in massive doses and uh, you know anyone who bought and say a ballarat say three years ago would have had um Two or three years of double-digit growth per year, really good rental returns, um, five, six percent type rental yields. So you know they will have achieved both, um, at least cash flow neutral. But um, depending how they were set up, maybe cash flow positive, but also getting really good um, capital growth. So you don't have to make a choice between the two. You can have both. I think that's the perfect investment. Um, I mean. The thing I bought in, in Bendigo um, uh, close to a year ago now um, is a combination of a really good rental yield. Um, it's already grown 10% in value according to the, the data and it can be subdivided into three blocks. Now, to me, that's pretty much for a small investor and I like to have a small investor mentality buying in small chunks. That's pretty much the perfect investment. Capital growth in a great location that's going to keep on growing, I think, Good rental yield and the ability to value add by, in this case, subdivision in the future. Um, what a great opportunity that was! That's, and places like Bendigo are full of opportunities like that. That's perfect. That, that absolutely that epitomises our holy trinity principles, which we, you know, they're the guiding principles by which we invest in for yeah. all, for all of our clients. I've got two. I'm mindful of time, right? And I've got two questions that I want to, I want to, I want to ascertain from you. Given you've got 35 years' experience in this, you've seen the trends come and go, you've spent, you know, long, actually, longer than I've been alive, you have been analysing the Australian property market, okay? So not to make you feel old there, Terry, I'm, I'm very young, I promise. Uh, um, no, you, I, don't, I don't need your help to make me feel old. <laughs> that I would like to know, what do you think the biggest myth or the biggest lie that property investors tell themselves what do you think is the biggest myth or lie that you can smash apart right now in the next couple of minutes? Like, what do you think? What do you think is really holding people back? Um, like, um, a couple of answers to that. In terms of the biggest myth is that you've got to be in the, the so-called prime suburbs to get the best growth. That's just bunkum, and, and the, you just got to look at the research figures to realise that it, it just isn't so. 
And once you let go of that, that you've got to be in the big cities, in the inner city, to get the best growth, to get the best investments, once you let go of that, suddenly it opens up all these other wonderful possibilities, including smaller cities, um, outer ring suburbs in some cases, and regional Australia. Um, but I think the thing that, um, well, two things that hold people back. The first one is the herd mentality, and we're seeing that right now because most people are intimidated by the situation, so they're sitting on the fence. They're stepping back and, and waiting to see what happens, um, and that somehow they think they'll know that um, they think someone's going to ring a bell and it's the right time to buy. Of course, that doesn't happen. So most people miss the best opportunities to buy and the best time to buy because they're herd animals, whereas the people who do really well and property investment are the ones who detach from the herd and usually run in the opposite direction. So um, the smart people will be out there right now looking for opportunities to buy well in good locations um, and take advantage of, of the circumstances because most people will be doing the opposite of that. Um, and um, I suppose what, what I often say is that you can encapsulate all the mistakes that investors make. Um, it all boils down to one mistake, and that is an unwillingness to spend time and money to do it properly. Most people who want to be property investors try to do it on the cheap. They'll grab everything that's free out there, um, but they won't spend any money. They won't pay for good advice. They won't pay for good research information. They try and do it on the cheap, and it's the worst kind of false economy. Whereas the people that I know have got portfolios of like 30 properties, 40 properties, their mentality is it's a business, and with any business, you've got to spend money to make money, and they surround themselves with good advice specialists in their field in the areas of uh, accountancy, um, uh, best place to get loans, um, tax depreciation, uh, good buyer's agent, all those sorts of things, good research information. They're willing to pay for it and they've been fantastically successful because they've brought that mentality to it. But most people, 90% of them won't do that and that's why they struggle. That's a um, that's a great synopsis, and it's very interesting because I'm in a um, you know as a buyer's agent myself, I'm in a very uh, fortunate position to like you be on the coal face. You know, I get to speak to um, the consumers, the property investors out there trying to make headway, particularly in this environment, and so it gives me a very um, a very deep insight into human psychology and what's what's happening in the marketplace you know aside from dealing with agents and all the rest of it and there's definitely there's two very distinct camps there's the there's the people that i like to call the fortune tellers they're one side now they're the people and the reason we call them fortune tellers here <laughs> is because they're the ones that are saying oh in three months that's when that's when it's going to be i'm going to I, I really want to do it i'm pumped I really want to invest. I've been saving up. I'm ready to go, but maybe just in six weeks or maybe just in three months or nine weeks. And it's like, what's happening then? Like, what, what date is that? Is that, what, is that May 29th? What, what date is that? Excuse me. Um, and what happens on that day? What do you know that I don't know? And these are the fortune tellers that are pushing it out. What they're actually really waiting for, what they're really saying when they make these judgments, and they may not make them verbally, they may not create. Uh, they may not create standpoints where they go. In six months, I will invest. What they're really saying is they are waiting for the headlines to change. Yeah. They are waiting for the the herd mentality to change. And that I think is the biggest mistake that people can make right now. Like, yes, there are challenges in the market. Yes, there are challenges in the economy. And anyone who says that there isn't, I think, is a fool. However, challenges also create opportunity. But if you wait for that proverbial bell to ring, which will be 
when uh, you know the Herald Sun and all of this kind of stuff start start spouting, oh, the, the property market's bouncing back, and then everyone will get excited and try and rush back into it, and they're all going to be too late to really maximize their opportunity, which is what leads to a lot of people to have underperforming portfolios because they won't have taken advantage of the opportunities at the best time to do so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, we, we totally agree on that point. And you know, the future right now belongs to the people who can think and act independently of the herd, which is get out there and start looking for opportunities in this climate because um, what a wonderful opportunity to to buy well in good locations without the comp- competition from the herd that will pile back in when they start reading that, that it's booming again, um, by which time they will have missed the best opportunities to buy well. Absolutely. But I do think, though, that... Um Whenever I um, give out that advice, I do put a caveat with that because I think it would be easy to go out and make a mistake right now. Yeah. I do. If, yeah. you, if, you, if you just went, okay, oh, now's the time to go and just go and buy a property, I do think that you, there's a big chance you'd make a mistake. And I would say that now more than ever, um, it is critical. It's imperative to make sure that you've got the right guidance and got the right advice and got the right resources and got the right team and all of that kind of stuff because – it is a slightly more high-risk environment, but that's why there's two camps. There's the fortune tellers and then there's the astute action takers who are like, okay, cool, I want to do this, but I also want to do it safely, securely, robustly. I want to minimize my risk, maximize my return, and they're the ones turning to professionals and they're the ones turning to get that advice to go, okay, cool, I want to do this, but I want to know that I'm doing the right thing. How do I know? And they move it through that market as it is. So. You know, I think that the mentality that applies when we have a federal election is a great example of that. This time last year, there was a federal election in the offing. I think there was also a state election in New South Wales and Banking World Commission, a lot of negativity. And everyone just withdrew from the market. Now, we want to wait and see what happens. The smart people were busy. Um, Prices had dropped in Sydney and Melbourne. And those that took advantage of that and bought well, what happened once we got beyond the federal election and APRA made some announcements, and then we had some interest rate cuts. We had uh, tax cuts uh, announced. Suddenly all these positive things happened, and markets started to rise again coming into this period. So those who, who bought back then when most people were sitting on the fence would have bought very well and um, would have got some really good growth in the, the 12 months that followed. So you know, it's another great example of, of the mentality of the herd, as a federal election, we can't possibly make a decision. Well, the fundamentals of real estate don't change regardless of who actually wins the election. You know, that's, that's a very important point that seems to be lost on a lot of people. Who cares, basically, about the election? Um, it's the opportunity that's important. And uh, people who can think and act independently are the ones that will have won back then, and they'll be the ones that will win now as long as they don't go and do something stupid. And of course, you've always got to... Um, be careful. You've always got to take the usual precautions. Do your research. Get your building and pest inspections done. But the point, the point you alluded to is really important. Now more than ever, you need to have really good quality advice on board and be willing to pay for it. You know, if you're willing to spend a few thousand dollars now, you're going to make tens of thousands of dollars. And the flip side of that, if you're trying to do it on the cheap, you may end up losing money. So you know, it's um, it's just basic business philosophy you've got to spend money to make money yeah i think and that's something i talk about a lot i think a lot of people forget that uh, property investing is uh, a business and you're a business owner and you need to think about it like yeah. a business and a, a lot of people don't they still think that it's essentially 
a multiple home ownership and they get emotionally invested. But, but most people treat it as a hobby, and um, you know, um, but the people who are successful treat it as a business, um, and, uh, and you know, all the fundamental business principles apply. Um, you put serious time into it. You you surround yourself with people who really know what they're doing in a range of different fields, and you pay that good advice, and you'll be successful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Well, this has been a, I think, a very valuable discussion. I think we've um, we've definitely uh, weaved around and covered a lot of covered a lot of ground. We've talked about the media. We've talked about the economy, some really key areas, and some great fundamentals um, to to look at when you're looking to invest the kinds of places to invest, the trends that we can expect to see in the future. I think this is going to be really beneficial to to a lot of people. Terry, did you have anything that you wanted to say before um, we wrapped up? Or, you know, how can people how can people benefit from from your knowledge as well? Well, I mean, what, what we do is we, um, we've got a, a research exercise that's going on every day um, right around the country looking for indicators of future growth. And we use that to compile our hotspots report um, and um, I mean, it's, it's a very valuable for thing to be for people to be, say, one of our premium members, which means you get all our reports. So you've got this flow of information, which uh, just the most important word in what we do is it's independent. We're not uh, influenced by any outside forces. We just look at what the facts tell us and we write reports uh, without fear or favour. Um, we also have a report called the No Go Zones, telling people the ones that they should avoid. We're actually working on that report right now. Um, so, you know, what we provide is good quality, easy to read, independent information that alerts people to the best places to consider to invest for future growth and good rental returns. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Terry, thanks for your time. Now, if you have uh, listened to this all the way through, if you've made it to this point in the podcast, that tells me that you are an avid, excited and passionate property investor. And if you would like an opportunity to, if you've enjoyed this content and want to take it a little bit further, we actually have a uh, an online membership site, a community, basically like a little real estate mastermind where we unpack some of the facts, figures, and data behind some of the best locations in the country. Um, coming up soon, I will be doing a deep dive into some of the Adelaide suburbs that we love and we're personally investing in with our clients. And we're also going to be unpacking future events as well. We're going to take a real deep analysis and pick out what to look for, what not, not to look for. If you're interested in finding out more about that, head to theinvestorlab.com.au forward slash join the community. And of course, if you just want some help, if you want to build a team, if you want to get the right guidance and advice to make the right purchase, you can reach out to work with me direct with me and my partner, Gabby. Uh, we run Dashdot Buyers Agents. And if that is of interest to you, just head to dashdot.info forward slash application and apply to work with us today. I hope this has been beneficial to you. Thanks, Terry. You're welcome. This is always fun having this conversation. Look forward to doing it again soon. Likewise. Speak soon.